0: Hello and welcome back to Vive la Tour, a look back at the 2022 Tour de France brought to you by the Sports Blitz. And look, I know what you're going to say, last time I did one of these, the Tour de France preview, I said that I'll be back to do a, I think I said I'd do the opening three stages and then do a week one episode and a week two and a week three. And that has clearly not happened. The reason for that is that shortly after recording that episode, I actually became ill and couldn't record any episodes. And then after I recovered, luckily I recovered just in time to go on holiday because that would have been a rough holiday if I'd still been under the weather. But yeah, I had recovered, but then I I went on holiday. I didn't take my podcast equipment with me because I, I just... You know, even for me, I I really enjoy podcasting, but that would have been a bit too much. And then I came back in the middle of the third week. And by that point, to be honest, I just thought it's just better to do a review podcast instead of Doing them all and then like releasing them as separate episodes, which I could have still done, but it would have been very out of date. So, yeah, I wasn't able to do the full range of podcasts this year like I wanted to, like I said I would in the last episode. And it's a real shame because this year's Tour de France was amazing, it was absolutely incredible, and maybe the best Tour de France I've ever watched. There's a few. In my mind that are of similar quality and you know I I think back to 2019 which was just dramatic chaos and well to some extent 2020 obviously is a very very biased Brit I would also say 2012 was exceptional as well and if I was to remove my bias a bit though not entirely 2014 because even though a Brit didn't win obviously Nibali won that year it did also start in Yorkshire, so that was good. And we're actually going to be talking about Yorkshire later on in the podcast. But yeah, main point, I think of all the tours I've watched, and you know, I started watching about 2010-2011, this is the best tour that I've ever watched. And it was just so unbelievably fun, absolutely fantastic, incredibly unpredictable. And of course, I think the main thing we have to talk about, and we will be talking about this in this podcast, is how it's shifted our expectations for the future of the Tour de France. Basically, what I'm saying is that Netflix should really be rubbing their hands with glee at the programme they're going to be able to create off the back of this tour. So long as they don't keep hemorrhaging all of their subscribers, they will have an absolutely fantastic programme on their hands. Anyway, Welcome to the show today. I hope you're doing well. I hope this podcast finds you in good health as per usual. Remember to go to anchor.fm forward slash the sports blitz to find a way you can play this podcast. You can also play it there or you can keep doing what you're doing. You are the Maya John of playing podcasts. And remember to go to the sports blitz website for writing about the Tour de France and other sports. All of the reviews are now up and coming up soon as well. The championship preview which is one of the articles I most enjoy writing, I love doing the championship stuff, and obviously, one of my fondest memories of doing news back of the day was doing the championship review for the 2018 19 season, which is where it all sort of started. Anyway, let's not talk about the championship for the time being, but I am obviously very excited for the new season. Let's instead talk about the Tour de France because, like I said, this was one of the best, if not the best, Tour de France I've ever watched. And I've seen a lot of people who have watched cycling for a lot longer than I have say the same thing. So it really was an absolutely exceptional edition of the Tour de France and one that will not be hard to remember. I'll be honest as well, actually. I talked about the 2012 Tour de France earlier on in the episode. I, a while ago now, bought the DVD version of that. I don't know if you remember it, but it was essentially just like three or four hours, I think four hours, of the ITV footage put onto a DVD. And they did that for years upon years upon years. And I think they've... I think they've stopped it now, but mostly because people just don't buy DVDs anymore, which is weird to me. I've actually personally thought that DVDs might make a comeback for quite a while just because of a number of streaming services you have to buy to watch everything you want. I mean, I only want Apple TV for Ted Lasso. I mean, it's Jesus, I would have just paid 20 quid for the DVD. But anyway, not the point. So, I have that. It's like four hours of the ITV footage, and... I would pay so much money for a 2021 version of that. So much money. Even if it was just all the GCN highlights, which I already have access to because I'm a GCN Plus subscriber. Obviously, I'm a GCN Plus subscriber. It's me, come on. I would pay so much money just to have them all on a DVD that meant I could watch it whenever I want as opposed to like the five minute highlights on YouTube which are just a bit pointless. I I really need that DVD. So please, anyone, someone, just please make it because it would be an exceptional purchase. I would happily have a a DVD or book of the 2022 Tour de France. It would be absolutely exceptional. So I'm going to start off by this is a very off-the-cuff episode i'm going to start by talking about my favorite stages of the tour de france and i'm just going to go through all of the stages that i liked and then i'll probably do some awards at the end and if that's enough i'll just wrap up the podcast there i will also be doing later on in the week a tour de france fam edition obviously by now the tour de france fam has started and i have opinions on it already obviously good opinions, It's it's been very fun so far, but that will be handled in a different episode. Right, let's talk about the notable stages of this year's Tour de France, and that just means we're just going to cut out like the five that weren't interesting, or maybe the two that weren't interesting, let's face it. Stage one will start off with, Copenhagen to Copenhagen, 13.2 kilometres, It was a time trial around one of the most picturesque cities in Europe and not that that picturesque on the day in question because it was chucking it down for a lot of the stage when Jeremy Le Croc became the first person to start the tour this year. The roads were already wet. At the start of the day, we assumed that the yellow jersey would be worn by one of the time trial specialists. This wasn't a hilly course. There wasn't so many technical features. So it was going to be who was just the best time trialist. And obviously the vein changed that. It particularly changed it for Stefan Bissinger. Who did have not a very good tour. Because I'll, well, I'll forget to mention it later on. So I'll say it now. I believe he punctured on the stage 20 time trial as well. He he definitely had a mechanical, but pretty much automatically knocked him out of the running. So yeah, considering these were meant to be his two main stages, it was a real disappointment for him. Because on stage one, he was the first rider to crash as a result of the slippery conditions. And then he was also the second rider to crash as a result of the slippery conditions. He was really struggling out there. Like his his boss went on GCM and said, look, he's got to play this aggressively regardless because this is like why he's here. So he is going to absolutely go flat out. Obviously, a lot of riders after that who just wanted to get round the course just decided to play it as safe as possible. And that was... That was the correct call. The first point of good time, and another thing we've not talked about, because obviously it's happened like this year. Trek-Secretary rider -Rider Bauke Mollemer, who has suddenly decided he's really good at time-trialing, he went to the Dutch National Time Trial Championships in a a field with former European champions in it, in the time-trial discipline, and he absolutely dominated He's never been a time trialist. And suddenly out of nowhere he just goes, yeah, I'm going to be dominant at this now. And he absolutely was. He's found his thing. I mean, better late than never, I guess. And it was actually quite a good performance from him. He went into the lead and it sort of looked like that we'd need another time trialist to be able to beat his time. But in the end, Matthew Van Der Poel was the first person to break his time because Matthew Van Der Poel can do everything. After that, Jumbo Visma's GC Riders came out. Uh, Jonas Vingegaard was the best of the two. He bettered the time for Primoz Roglic. Obviously, I don't know if you saw in the introduction the day before when all the riders come out. What? I forgot what you call calling now. Uh, the... No. Team intro. Team presentation. That's it. In the team presentation... Jumbo Visma came out, and Primoz Roglic was asked to question about who would be the team leader for the tour, and obviously this was in Copenhagen, which is in Denmark, which is where Jonas Vingegaard is from, so the whole crowd was chanting, Vingegaard, 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 and putting him not in an uncomfortable situation, because obviously he knew that was going to happen. And it was just really funny to watch that. Obviously, the same thing happened the day after with the Vingegaard chant as he went around the streets of Copenhagen. He put in a better time than Roglic. But both of them were beaten by Tadej Pogacar because he can also do everything. Over 13 kilometers, he put in a 8-second advantage over Vingegaard, 9 over Roglic, 16 ahead of Adam Yates. 18 ahead of Garain Thomas, 24 ahead of Vlasov, 37 ahead of Martinez, if you considered him to be a contender, which, to be honest, I didn't. I saw all of the press going, oh, what could Danny Martinez do? And I'm like, nothing. Because he's not Pogaccia. And also, like, but he's won solely Zulia Basque country. I was like, not the Tour de France. Uh, <laughs> credit to him, he's a very good rider, but he's, I, don't, I don't see him in that level yet. I need to be... Convinced more, and he, he's not done that yet. Anyway, speaking of Geraint Thomas, he he had an interesting approach to the stage. Uh, he went to warm up uh, before the time trial in his GLA and then he did the unconventional thing of not taking the GLA off to do his time trial. So, just just for those who don't know, in the Tour de France, the budget for teams is massive and so these skin suits that they wear for time trials they spend thousands upon thousands upon thousands of euros preparing these skin suits to make sure they're absolutely perfect to deal with time trials and that they're absolutely it's like a formula one team building their car you know no stone is left unturned everything's got to be perfected and the gile, which is to keep you warm before you start your time trial attempt, is there to not be part of the time trial skin suit. And yet Garant just wore it anyway, hence nullifying the advantages of all of those thousands upon thousands upon thousands of euros of research. So, Well done, Geraint. He did do a good thing afterwards, and and we'll mention it now, is that after that, he sort of played it up for comedic effect and did Where's G's Gile? And asked people to pass it round and sign it. And the goal was to get it delivered to Paris in the end, which it did. And I believe he's doing the same for the Tour de France farm, which finishes at La Superplanche de Baufey. So they're trying to get it delivered there. As well. And it was just a really nice thing. It was quite charming, it was funny, and it would have probably been worse if he'd lost a lot of time. I mean, let's face it, I I know any deficit against Pagaccia, especially in this tour of the beginning, seemed like a a monumental impossibility to overcome. But he was only 18 seconds down, he had the chance to to laugh at it. Uh, For the rest of the stage, Filippo Garner. Went next out of the contenders and, you know, he did actually go fastest and went to go and sit in the chair, to which the, the leader sits in during time trials. Didn't even get a chance to sit down because man who can do everything, and we will say this again and again during this episode, Vout Van Art immediately went faster. And, surprise! And the only thing that was going to keep Val van Aert out of the yellow jersey was going to be a truly exceptional performance from somebody else. Step forward, Yves Lampart, who apparently is now a time trial expert as well. Because why not? You'll get the sense of this during the rest of the podcast. This year's Tour de France was a bit crazy. Dash very crazy. He put in a performance that stunned everyone else. He went five seconds faster than his Belgian compatriot, And whilst it is worth pointing out that the conditions did get better during the day, it was not significantly better between Van Aert's attempt and Lampert's attempt that explains a five-second gap. Because you would have expected Lampert to finish comfortably behind Van Aert, or at least I would have. But he finished comfortably ahead in the end, and as a result, he took the first yellow jersey of this Tour de France. And I said I'd bring Yorkshire back into this whilst we're on the topic of just Denmark in general. The fans in Denmark were absolutely sensational. It was so good that the commentators, at least on the English broadcasts I listen to, ITV and GCN, regularly kept comparing it to Yorkshire. And anyone who was at the Tour de France in Yorkshire will know that's a big compliment to give because the the atmosphere at the Grand Depart in Yorkshire back in 2014 was absolutely unreal and the tour even to this day are taken aback by how good it was in fact if you brought the tour de france magazine as well like i did the race director christian Prudhomme also mentioned yorkshire this year <laughs> and so they're still thinking about it all this time later it was absolutely incredible Stages 2 and 3 would be very similar to one another. Stage 2, Reskildes to Nyborg, 2025 kilometers. Stage 3, Valia to Sonderborg, 182 kilometers. And I'd just like to say, sorry Danish people. Now you get to understand the pain that French and German people get listening to this podcast. I'm 99% sure I said that. In the preview podcast. But I've now already forgotten. Or not forgotten if I'm correct. And pointed it out accurately. Anyway. Not the point. The point is Magnus Court, Who was the only reason to care about the opening hours. Of either stage. He Going to the breakaway on both days. He took every single categorised climb. On both of them stages. And I know it's, it's quite hard to find climbs in Denmark, because very flat country. But they did. Well done to the Tour de France and actually finding some some hills, because they actually did. And they were actually quite entertaining, if only because Magnus Court existed. And the crowd... The fantastic crowd in Denmark kept cheering him on and after the climbs he was celebrating, especially on stage two when he rode into the polka dot jersey where he was going, yeah, come on, and all that. It was absolutely fantastic. Obviously on stage two, the key was always going to be the great bout bridge towards the end of stage, 18 kilometres. And it was controversial, if only because uh, EF education had had a crash before Roberto Iran was caught up in something, and for some utterly mind-boggling reason, the commissaires did not allow them to use the cars to get back towards the peloton. Technically, it's not allowed, but when a rider's been involved in a crash and they start, you know, following the cars closely to gain gain an advantage, they sort of turn a blind eye to it because there's been a crash. And, and we'll just go, we'll just ignore that. This time, they were ultra stringent on the Ivan and the EF Education EasyPost riders who were trying to use the cars to get back. So, I, I have no idea what that was about. He had to chase for over 12 kilometres god knows yellow jersey also caught in a crash at the start of the bridge but weirdly he was allowed to use the cars to get back to the peloton so your guess is as good as mine at this point point. and the big disappointment with the great bout bridge was that it was a headwind in the end we were sort of expecting a crosswind or cross headwind on, on the bridge, that did not happen. It was a headwind, which pretty much neutralised the race. So we didn't get those echelons that we wanted. It was a bit of a disappointment, but whatever. And again, those was a touching of wheels within the final three kilometres. Obviously, everyone gets the same time. But it did force quite a few people down. And one of the uh, notable people to get caught up, Tadej Pagacci, who came in quite a few minutes down in the end. I think over three minutes, but like we said... Crash occurred in the final three kilometres. Didn't really matter. Val Van Aert looked like he was going to win stage two, but as he was approaching the line, he was overtaken by Fabio Jakobsen, who won his first stage. Van Aert finished second for the second stage in a row, because he'd finished second in the time trial the day before. And we'll talk about Jakobsen more after we've reviewed stage three. So again, it was the same thing, right? Magnus Court going the breakaway, Magnus Court won all of the climbs, Magnus Court celebrated, the fans celebrated, we all had a lovely time watching it, and like I said, he took all of the points from the Danish climbs, which was exceptional. The wind wasn't as bad as it was the day before, it wasn't expected to be as bad as the day before, because the the Bout Bridge and quite a lot of the uh, route before it was pretty much on the coast, whereas this time it was more inland and so the only thing that really happened was there was a crash with 10 kilometers to go. Quite a few riders got caught up in that. The intermediate sprint earlier on in the stage had a photo finish for it and that is exactly what would happen at the finish line as well and for the third stage in a row, Wout Van Art would come second so great for him. Instead, The man who beat him to the line, the man with the best engine of the day, Dylan Grunewagen, won for Bike Exchange, Jayco. And this is where we're going to talk about Jakobsen again, because you might remember quite a few years ago, there was a big crash between Jakobsen and Grunewagen at the Tour of Poland. And it was typical sort of argy-bargy that we see in sprint finishes, but Grunewagen was was given the blame for the crash and Jakobsen was really badly injured from that crash. Now, the injuries weren't Grunewagen's fault, despite what angry people on the internet might say. The road furniture and the, the way that all of the barriers had been designed and how everything had been secured was horrifically bad and that's what led to Jakobsen's injuries. But Grunewagen's got a lot of of abuse for it would be the correct word and death threats and he said that it sort of mentally affected him ever since. Jakobsen actually has said that it doesn't affect him because he doesn't remember any of it so how could it affect him and that's a that's a weird line to take if only because he surely remembers having to recover from it but As everyone says, you have to be a little bit of crazy to be a sprinter because it is truly preposterous when you think about it because you're travelling at 70 kilometres an hour on a bicycle playing argy-bargy with people. It, It is a bit insane. But yeah... Jacobson obviously had to overcome all of the all of the struggles that resulted from his very bad injuries. I think he had to have pretty big facial reconstruction surgery and had to get a lot of his teeth re done. And and so he had all of that all of those struggles to come back from. Grunewagen had to overcome the mental struggle. He had, as I said, death threats against him, death threats against his family as well, which is ultra not cool. And so both of them have had to fight back from that crash in their own way. And so to see them both win a stage was really nice. Uh, Jakobsen on stage two, have, having come through all that. Werner Egan on stage three. There was a bit of controversy afterwards because Jakobsen supposedly said some things, though I couldn't verify if he'd said them during the tour or way before the tour or whatever. People kept putting different things online going, oh, no, he didn't say this. Oh no, he did. Blah, 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 blah. But essentially... I mean, I've got nothing against either of these cyclists as a result of this. And it was was nice to see them both be able to mark a win in the Tour de France. I'm pretty sure it was their first wins in the Tour de France as well. And I will point out, just because I feel like I have to, uh, obviously Fabio Jakobsen going in place of Mark Cavendish. We we knew this already. That's why Mark was at the Giro d'Italia. But still... hmm. I, I mean, I'm, I'm not going to say I don't understand, because I do, but it, it is disappointing, just, just a little bit, just a little bit disappointing, because he could have won his 35th stage at this tour, and that would have been exceptional, and perfect, and everything, but it didn't happen, so we're, we're just going to leave it. And also, let's face it, something else happened in this tour, which I am very big on, and we will be talking about that later. And if you know me, you already know what I'm referring to, because there's one stage that really stands out. So anyway, that was the Tour de France in Denmark. We then obviously moved back to France, stage four, that van art, got his first victory, a, a pretty comfortable victory, in the end from uh, Dunkirk to Calais, 171.5 kilometres. And despite the best efforts of some of the sprinters trying to pull him back, Van Aert, once he got away from the lead group, his victory was pretty comfortable. In fact, it was so comfortable that when Jasper Philipson crossed the line some eight seconds later, he hadn't noticed Van Art had won and celebrated. <laughs> He thought he'd won the stage, and no, he hadn't. It was it was a typical premature celebration. Speaking of, by the way, somebody put a clip of that on Reddit, and oh my God, the number of people who do not understand cycling on Reddit. It shouldn't be a surprise, but a lot of them going, no, no, he doesn't think he's won. He knows he's come second. He's just really happy to have come second on a stage of the Tour de France. No. That's not how that works. He, he was we celebrated because he thought he'd won the stage. And anyone who tells you otherwise is objectively stupid. Even Philipson admitted this after the stage. But it was absolutely hilarious. Uh, Vavanard had actually, by the way I should have mentioned this, he had gone into the yellow jersey on stage 2 because uh, finishing second he had got enough bonus seconds to overtake Yves Lampert at the top. So he obviously extended his lead in the yellow jersey on stage 4. Stage 5 was a a stage, it was a big stage and had Pogaccia gone on to win the, the Tour de France again and you'll know the result of, of how the tour went by now. So, I don't need to dress it up. This would have been the stage that would have been seen as, like, the big, sort of, first big punch in his favour. Because everything that could go wrong for Jumbo Visma in this stage went wrong. And, and Pogaccio ended up picking up pretty comfortable time on all of all of the contenders for Jumbo Visma. And by that, I mean the two contenders for Jumbo Visma. So obviously it was Lille to Arenberg, 157 kilometers, and obviously like I said in the preview that meant they were going to be using a lot of the route from Paris-Roubaix and obviously that means cobbles and the cobbles were fantastic and I love watching them. The first problem that Jumbo Visma suffered it was just after sector 6, Jonas Vingegaard had a mechanical and oh boy, the bike change madness that started as a result of that because he was nowhere near the team car. He had three bike changes. I think the first one he changed onto, it might have been Christophe Leport's bike. I can't really remember off the top of my head. But it was it was like watching... Like a very young kid on an adult's bike, because oh my god, was it far too big for him? He could barely touch the pedals, and he was he was trying. He had to keep standing up. He couldn't sit down on the seat and pedal at the same time. So it was it was wild. And then you had this image of five Yumbo riders all doing like musical chairs with each other, but with bikes. Because none of them could figure out which bite would be best for Vingegaard. He obviously had to take poverty because he was one of the GC contenders for Jumbo Visma. And it was absolute unrelenting madness. But hey, if there's one advantage, it's that Primoz Roglic is fine. There's nothing bad happened with Primoz Roglic and, you know... If God loses time, he's chasing back. But if Vingegaard loses time, that's fine. Because we can put all of our eggs into the Primoz Roglic basket. And just before they entered sector 5, there was a big crash. Primoz Roglic went down and he dislocated his shoulder. And in the post-race press, he talked about having to use a fan's foldable chair. To pop his shoulder back in, and he talked about about like that was a completely normal thing that we've all done. Like, I was went, oh, you know, um, I, I, I struggled, I, I dislocated my shoulder, got a fan-fold up chair, popped it back in, got back on the bike. Like, what, d- dude? Just slow down here. You did what? <laughs> I used a used a fold up chair to to pop my shoulder back in. You, you not done that before? No. <laughs> And, obviously, as a result of that... I mean, Primoz Roglic is involved in a lot of stuff. uh, And a lot of it can be his fault. This one wasn't his fault. But you can't deny that he's a warrior. He's an absolute fighter. I don't know where he finds the ability to do this from. I always go back to the quote from um, Julian Alaphilippe, who said that you've got to be a bit of a masochist to be a cyclist. And this proves that point. So, anyway... Luckily, he was able to stay in the race for, for a bit. He abandoned on stage 15? I want to say stage 15, but it might have been stage 14. So, I actually stayed in the race for a long time after that. But he lost far more time than Jonas Vingegaard would in the end. Jonas Vingegaard, at the end of the stage, had a gap of about 21 seconds to Tadej Pogacar. So, not actually that bad. Whereas, Primos Roglic would end up losing more than two minutes on this stage. Pogacar did try to take advantage of the situation. He he attacked towards the end of the stage with Jasper Steuven. And if there's anyone who you want to be attacking with are Paris-Roubaix, essentially. But it wasn't. But, you know, on the course of Paris-Roubaix, it is probably Jasper Steuven, the one-day race specialist. But... They weren't able to get back to the lead group. They finished 51 seconds down. Uh, the lead group, Simon Clark, Taka Van der Horn, Edvar Hagen, Nielsen Prowless, and Magnus Court being perfect once again. Except for he wasn't in this stage. Magnus Court was the first to sort of drop off. And the the sprint was was weird because I can't remember who it was who went first. I think it was Nielsen Prowless. And he went really early, like really, really early. And it was sort of a move that was doomed to failure. It looked like Taco Van der Horn was going to win the stage after that because he sort of seemed to launch his sprint at the exact perfect time. I was like, yes, Taco Wednesday. It was on a Wednesday. I can't remember what day it was on now. That was on a Wednesday. Good guess. Tackle Wednesday, except it wasn't Tackle Wednesday, because Simon Clarke would overtake him and take the stage win, and that was very disappointing. I really wanted a Tackle van der Horn win, but we didn't get it. Teddy Pagaccio, as I said, came in 51 seconds down. He sort of boosted his lead over the other favourites. Like I said, 21 seconds above Vingegaard. But all of the other favourites, including Yates and Thomas and Martinez, if you count him, were all behind Vingegaard. So, it was a big stage for Pogacar. It looked like a stage that was really going to solidify his chances of winning the Tour de France. And more importantly, it did completely knock out Primoz Roglic. Because there's no way he was going to come back from that sort of gap. Imagine gaining over two minutes on Pogacar. Completely impossible. Anyway, stage 6 would solidify what we knew be to Long V, 220km. And this was the day where Tadej Pogacar rode into the yellow jersey. And this all came down to the final climb into Long v. And for all we criticised Pogacar's team, rightfully, for just not being that good. Brandon McNaughty did a lot of pushing on this climb. And um, that really helped Pagatcha. But to be honest. The main thing that helped Pagatcha Was none of the other riders. Seemingly being aware of anything. Because he he kept the pace going at the front of Pogaccia, But nobody really launched a sprint. Or reacted when Pagaccha launched his sprint. It was really weird. I was watching them going like. Are you going to do something? He's going. He's going now. And like Vingegaard uh, was like. 20 riders back and couldn't react and the riders at the front just didn't. I, I wanted a Tom Pidcock win on this stage, but that, that didn't happen. This was my first real hope that he was going to do. I was like, oh, he could, he could win a stage. And if you didn't know what I was referring to earlier by the one stage I really liked, you have guessed it by now. But yeah, Pegatcha was a league above everyone else on, on this stage. And whilst normally that would be a compliment to Pogaccia... It kind of was and kind of wasn't on this stage because, to be honest, for me, everyone else was mind-bogglingly bad, but that stage gave Pogaccia the yellow jersey, and the day after, he rubber-stamped that on stage seven. Tom Blaine to La Planche de Balfi, 176.5 kilometres. Going under the flam Rouge, Leonard Kamner had a lead of about 36 seconds, but obviously, Going under the flamroo just means that your suffering is about to get worse when it comes to less super de bounty because obviously that's when the gravel starts and the climb starts to get truly ridiculous, going up to a 24% gradient by the end. It looked like for a bit of it he was going to keep on to his lead, and then when he turned off the gravel, or sorry, yeah, off the gravel back onto the tarmac, you could see he was completely cooked. The gap had come down to the Maya Jorn group, obviously, led by Pogaccia. And he took over... Actually, no. First, it was Vingegaard who took over. Vingegaard was the first to attack. And it looked like he could win. But he ran out of gas before Pagatcha did. And, I mean, at the very top of that climb at the line, Vingegaard almost stopped. (laughs) Like, he was that tired Pagatcha despite going at an absolute snail's pace, held on for the victory, was amongst the most tired we saw of riders in this Tour de France. And it was another performance that sort of solidified where we thought Pogacar was, because Vingegaard had thrown everything at him in that stage, and it just did not matter. And to be honest, at the top of that, climb, Pagaccia looked better than Ringer God did and looked more energetic than God was. And we'll talk about like how that stage has been rewritten narrative wise since because I think that's one of the stages where the narrative has sort of been rewritten the most. But it was a big win for today, Pikachu. Even though it only just touched his victory because obviously he got bonus seconds over Jonas Vingegaard. His gap at that point was 35 seconds. But like we said earlier on, on stage 1, any gap behind Tadej Pogacar at that moment felt like an absolute mountain to overcome. we we'll quickly touch upon stage 10. Morzine to gave 1485 kilometers. I'm almost pronounced that second one wrong. But I'll mention it because it was won by the hero of week one, Magnus Court of EF Education, Easy Post. The final climb was really strange. It was almost like the climb up to La Super de Balfi where everyone had already given everything they could and they were tired. It was it was a it was a slow sprint to the line, that one. At first, it looked like it was going to be a three-up sprint. Luis Leon Sanchez had broken away from the breakaway with about six kilometres to go. looked like he was going to hold his lead all the way to the line at first, but then Nick Schultz, who is, yes, from Australia, despite not sounding like it, and Mattel Jorgensen caught him. They went under the flamme rouge together, but they slowed right down like a track meet, and that allowed five others to bridge the gap. And in that, Magnus Court won out in quite a slow sprint. Barely, barely beating Nick Schultz in a photo finish for what would have been the Australians' first ever win at the Tour de France. But Magnus Court deserved it. He got back into that group. He pushed to get back into that group and then he had more energy than that group. Despite the fact that that group had been going at about one kilometer an hour for the last two minutes. So... (laughs) Yeah, well done to Magnus Court, but obviously, the stage that redefined this Tour de France, redefined what we've come to expect from the Tour de France, redefined how we think of the cyclists involved was stage 11, Albertville to Col de Granon, 152 kilometers. You will remember this stage for the rest of your life. You'll remember where you were watching this stage for the rest of your life, because it might be the most seismic in the recent history of the Tour de France. What we thought we knew before, what we expected, completely changed. For all of his time on top of the sport, since winning on La Plance de Balfi in 2020, Tade Pogacar had seemed unbeatable. Completely unbeatable. If he's on his day, you're not going to beat him. If he, regard unless he gets an injury or you know has has some other problem, you're not going to beat him. This was the first day since he won his first Tour de France in which he was not invincible, in which he was not mortal because he was still otherworldly, but in which someone could match him. And beat him. And that is exactly what happened. And this is where the conversation about his team comes back in. Because the reason he lost this stage more than anything else. Was because his team was not up to the job. Jumbo Visma had their plan from the beginning. They were going to isolate Tadej Pogacar early on. And then really ratchet up the pressure on him. And they executed it to perfection. They sort of used Primoz Roglic. As a bait. To get Pogaccia to to push. And when it was clear that actually Roglic was not the the guy. The rest of the Jumbo Visma team went to work for Jonas Vingegaard. That had been the plan all day long. He was completely isolated. On the cold of Gronon he just could not keep up with the pace. And it was weird because earlier on on the climb he had looked at the camera and sort of jokingly got... Did he do all the thumbs? Did he do a thumb up and and smile and sort of fool around, which was sort of seen as, oh, that's him showing that he's okay and ready to go for this climb. Whereas after the stage, it was seen as this last line of defence to try and fool Jumbo Visma to think that he was okay when he actually really wasn't. But anyway, Jonas Vingegaard picked exactly... The right time to attack. And as soon as he did. It was blatantly obvious that Pikachu had nothing to offer in response. Vingard attacked on the climb like no one else would have been able to. Which was bad news for French fans. Because Warren Barguil and Roman Bardet had been up the road. And he just cycled past them like they weren't there. Vingard was absolutely perfect on that final climb up. The cold had gone on. In the end, he took two minutes fifty-one seconds on Pagaccha, which before did not seem possible at all, and yet he he managed it. Stormed into the yellow jersey. He was two minutes sixteen ahead of Bardet, who went into second place. Two minutes twenty-two ahead of Pagaccha. Two twenty-six ahead of Geraint Thomas. It was absolutely seismic, and of course. It could have ended up being just one bad stage for Pogaccia. We'll get on to why it wasn't in the end. But it was one of those stages that completely changed what we sort of expected. Because before that, Pogaccia did seem completely invincible. And afterwards, it was clear that he could actually lose to... A rider who's on his level. And that Jonas Vingegaard is actually on Pogaccia's level. Which we also didn't think. I always sort of thought. uh, Jonas Vingegaard was nearly as good as Pogaccia. But not quite there. Like that's what last year's tour seemed to show. Whenever they were on a climb together. Vingegaard would keep up. But Pogaccia would get away in the final 100 metres. Whereas this year obviously. Vingegaard's proven he can be way better. Than that, And I mentioned earlier on as well the sort of narrative around the climb up the Superplan about the change because it was sort of seen that Pogaccia had been a bit too greedy in the first week of the tour and that he put far more into his attacks than he should have and he was going far too in the red and they caught up with him. I I don't know about that because he did finish those stages stronger than Ringigod did and looked more energetic than Vingegaard did. And I don't think that was because Vingegaard was saving his energy for week two. I think that was just because Pogaccia was better on those days. I do also want to briefly mention as well the handshake between Pogaccia and Vingegaard after the race. It was a great show of sportsmanship. And we'll get back onto that later on when we talk about another stage as well. But the, the rivalry between the two, and it will be a big rivalry now in cycling for a long time to come it is a friendly rivalry and it's a rivalry that's grounded in respect and that's what we want to see really at the end of the day we want to see two great sportsmen going up against each other and, and admiring the other's talents and that's that's what we're getting also uh that van art gifted his green jersey to a fan who had helped him with a flat tire which was absolutely Fantastic, because for that art, that jersey would have just been another in the collection. Whereas for that fan, it will be the most prized asset he has. Probably, I don't know the guy. So that was also really nice. Anyway, let's talk about the only stage in this tour that actually matters at all: Stage Twelve, Briancon to Alpe d'Huez, hundred and sixty-five point five kilometers and one. By the man, the myth, the legend, Sir Tom Pidcock—not a Sir, but other cyclists have been, and he absolutely could be. This is the only stage that matters as a, as a Yorkshireman, as a cyclocross fan, as as a Tom Pidcock fan. This is the only stage that actually matters from this year's tour. The hardest stage of the tour this year as well, a repeat of one of the more infamous stages in tour history, the 1986 stage, where Greg LeMond all but sealed the tour over his teammate Bernard Hinault after Hinault had attacked him constantly, again and again and again, and it was a complete repeat of that stage. There were two shocks early in the stage. The first was Chris Froome attacking from the peloton on the Col de Galibier, which was surprising because that's not a typical Chris Froome move, but it did show that Froome was in the best form that he's been in since his Tour winning days and since that awful injury he suffered a few years ago has really knocked him back. But the second one was the unbelievable descending abilities of Tom Pidcock. He got to speeds of over 80 kilometres per hour On the descent of the Gliubier, he was throwing it down that mountain. And Sean Kelly on the GCN coverage called him a demon descender. Um, That was absolutely the correct term for for Pidcock because he was absolutely outstanding. On a stage where he summited Alpe d'Huez like no one else could. No one else could keep up with him. It was still his descending that got more attention. And that's how good his descending was. It was absolutely fantastic. He was in the breakaway group that started the climb of Alp d'Huez first. And it was clear fairly early on on the climb that Pidcock was going to ride away to victory. He was in a complete class of his own. He went clear. He entered the village at the top with a coronation. And he had mastered the 21 hairpins like nobody else could on the day. In doing so, he's become the youngest rider to win on Alpe d'Huez, which is really quite the compliment, and he was absolutely perfect on the entire stage. You cannot have enough compliments about Tom Pidcock's performance, and I've always sort of been cautious when people have said, oh, future Tour de France contender, because First of all, none of the Cyclocross stars have gone on to actually seriously compete for the Tour de France. You know, he's he's obviously, because of his background, heavily compared to Matthew Van Der Poel and Val Van Aert, and neither of them are are serious GC contenders. But if there is one stage that could show future GC potential, it is winning on Alpe d'Huez. And that is what Pidcock did, and quite comfortably as well. Credit also to Louis Menkes, who was very good in finishing second, the intermarche wanty Bear rider. And Chris Froome finished third on the stage. It, Like I said, he it's his, the best form he's been in since he was the dominating Tour de France champion. And obviously, he's never going to get back to those levels. But seeing competitive again is is something. So that was, that was a really, really fun stage as a British cycling fan. And who knows, maybe Tom Pidcock's future is in the GC, we we don't know at the moment, but regardless of whether he ends up being a GC rider, or a Val Van Art, or just a Tom Pidcock, then just a Tom Pidcock. That's a massive thing in and of itself, but regardless of what he ends up being when it comes to his classification of rider, what I think we do know is that he'll be leaning in the entertainment department because... Pidcock is just such an exceptional rider to watch. Whether it's in the Tour de France, whether it's in Cyclo, Cross or anything else, uh, mountain biking, Pidcock is fantastic. In the Battle for the GC, by the way, uh, Pogaccia attacked. Vingegaard stayed glued to his wheel. Geraint Thomas eventually caught up and that happened about four times on the climb, it feels like. And Pogaccia didn't gain any time back at all, but obviously had to try anything at that point. So, I have noticed the time on this podcast, at least, the time that it is pre-edited. So, just rushing through uh, some of the other stages before we get to the next big one. Mads Pedersen won his first stage of the Tour de France on stage 13. Michael Matthews finally put behind what had been quite a rough Tour de France for him on stage 14 with a win. Jasper Philipsen gained a big win on stage 15, making up for that sort of... Premature or not correct celebration on stage four. He won stage fifteen. And temperatures at that point, by the way, you might remember it was a bit warm in Europe around that time. Forty degrees. That's not that's not good weather for sport. I uh, I remember going back to the UK the day after. I think it was on the rest day. Oh, Jesus Christ, it was awful. Anyway. The day after that, whilst I was desperately trying to get a train from London King's Cross, which proved to be pretty much impossible, it was a breakaway stage won by Hugo Huell. Uh, then stage 17 won by Tade Pogacar. And it was the first stage, bar maybe stage 6, in which Pogacar's team actually did something. Which wasn't... Something we expect because on the morning it uh, it was announced that Rafael Micah, who had been maybe Pagaccia's best domestique alongside Brandon McNulty, he was leaving. Mark Soler had left the day before, so Pagaccia had three domestiques left at that point, and yet it didn't really matter because Pagata's team actually did go to work and did look really good. He set a devastating pace. It proved too much for. Jumbo Visma, and Thomas, and Bardet, and everyone else. And whilst Vingegaard did stick to Pogaccia's wheel when it came to the final sprint, it was Pogaccia who had more energy and just overtook Vingegaard to get to the line first. Obviously, that meant he didn't get much time back. And that led us to stage 18, Luz, to Huttakam, 1435 kilometers. sorry French people by the way. Uh, this was the day where Pagaccia had to do a lot. Because the day after that was a flat stage. The stage after that was a time trial. And to be honest, it was going to be hard for Pagaccia to really do much on a time trial. He needed at least a minute 30 I would say on stage 18. I think that's why I wrote someone... In in a group chat, I said like a minute 30 minimum today, otherwise it's over. And that did not happen. Obviously, the moment that we remembered most from this stage isn't actually Vingegaard winning the Tour de France, which is the weird part. On the descent before the final climb into Hottokam... Pagaccia and Vingegaard, by themselves, were really pushing it. And, of course, Pagaccia had to. Vingegaard was sticking on his wheel. But Vingegaard did nearly fall over at one point. He nearly lost it. His back wheel came out. He was struggling. And so we were seeing how much the riders were going through to try and get down this descent. And then Pagaccia did fall. He overcorrected on loose tarmac. We were commenting on the state of the tarmac off the road all day. It wasn't good. Uh, it wasn't terrible, I've seen worse, especially at the Giro at times. Uh, but it, it wasn't great either, there was a lot of loose tarmac, uh, which was not helping much, especially on the side of the road. So, Pikachu, he sort of had had a small problem at first, When he overcorrected and tried to get out of the corner faster than he really should have, and he fell over. And at this point, Vingegaard, as the John, had two options. He either could ditch him... And cycle away, try and attack, take advantage, and secure the Tour de France. Or he could do what he did. He waited instead and allowed Pegaccia to catch back up. It was a fantastic moment of sportsmanship. It shows that the rivalry between them is not at a bad blood level. They shook hands. Pegaccia thanked him. And that's what we want to see. We want to see the Tour won based on who's the best cyclist, not based on loose gravel or mechanicals or anything like that. And it was really good. And what happened next shifts depending on who you trust. But for me, at the time, what it looked like was that Pogaccia's team was demanding that he attack again and Pogaccia flat out refusing. There was a point where the team car... Pulled up next to Pagatcha, and he was properly shouting at whoever was inside. He was he was telling them something. His team came out after the stage and talked about how great the moment was and how good it was for of to do what he did, and how great it was for Vingegaard to do what he did, and and so that would seem to put a dampener on that narrative, because it doesn't seem like they're disagreeing, but you would not. As a team that employs Tadej Pogacar, You would not leave him <laughs> out to dry like that. On, on social media. When he is the only reason that you have success ever. So. Anyway. He didn't attack again on the descent. They went down together. Then the climb up to Hatakam began. Vout Van had been in the breakaway all day. And he came back to assist Vingegaard. And that is when... His victory became clear, because as a result of that, they distanced Tadej Pogacar. He broke on the final climb, and that Van Aert eventually broke. It turns out he's not Superman. Well, well, he is Superman, but just not, like, God, you know? That might be a tad bit disrespectful, sorry, people of Belgium. And he, he still came third on the stage, so... After all that, after being in the breakaway all day, after assisting Jonas Vingegaard up the hardest climb of the day and breaking, he still recovered enough energy to finish third because he can do everything and is fantastic. But Vingegaard ended up putting another minute into Tadej Pogacar as a result of that stage. And that confirmed, pretty much, barring utter disaster, like maybe an asteroid or something, that Jonas Vingegaard was going to win the Tour de France. It was on that stage as well, a guy like Thomas, who I've briefly mentioned at points, secured his podium with an impressive performance. He at one point did attack Vingegaard and Pogaccia, which worked for about 25 seconds. Obviously, the ultimate loser of the day, though, was Simon Geschke, who just needed the leading two of Pogaccia and Vingegaard to stay away for him to secure the polka dot jersey. It would have been a massive deal for him but not only did that not happen vingegaard took enough points to claim the polka dot jersey so not only did he not win it but he had to still wear the jersey through to paris because obviously vingegaard was in the maya john and and so he had to wear the polka dot on his behalf which really feels like twisting the knife at that point he was so close to realizing his dream and it, it dissipating like that like it did was just a bit cruel. It was just bullying from the cycling gods at that point. Stage 19 by the way. Castor now. took a Cahore. 1885 kilometers. Uh, won again by young Visma rider Christophe Laporte. Everyone got in on the fun uh, this year. But that was a fun stage as well. Because Tadej Pogacar decided to attack from 35 kilometers out. And don't get me wrong. He absolutely knew it wasn't going to do anything. But he was bored and just wanted to attack. Because, you know, why sit in the peloton and just sort of cycle at a leisurely pace when you can, you know, have fun and race? And it, that's the only thing Tade Pogacar is interested in. He just wants to race. And he did. He did actually gain a little bit of time because he came fifth in the sprint because now he's really good at sprinting too because he can do everything. But he only gained a few seconds. It was Christophe Laport who won, as I mentioned. He broke away with 800 metres to go. He made it look like everyone else was cycling in slow motion. Even uh, y- Jasper Philipsen, who sort of started to look a bit more lively towards the final 200 metres, still did not have anything on Leport. Uh, it was just another exceptional performance. And then we got on to the final stage before Paris. Stage 20, Lacapal, Marival, to Rocamadour, 40.7 kilometres. It was proof that this is van Art's world and we're just all living in it because it was meant to be another one for the specialists. And when Filippo Ganna set his time, the commentators were going, Oh, wow, that was pretty much perfect. He couldn't have done much better. And then Valvan Art came out and completely destroyed it. He put a minute into Ganna's time. ...on a course that was meant to be exclusively for the time trial specialist... ...because this was the craziest Tour de France ever... ...and didn't make any sense. But then, it somehow got even weirder... ...because the GC riders were meant to take the day slowly... ...and just... ...and Ringard was just meant to go out and guarantee his Tour de France victory. But even then... Both he and Pegatcha set faster times than Valt Van Aert, who had set a time that was one minute faster than the World Time Trial Champion on a course designed for time trialists only. Because, again, it was insane. Pegatcha sort of started to, to lose out towards the end. Vingegaard was not. He was actually faster than Valt Van Aert. In, after the third intermediate time check. And at that point, he decided to finally slow down and lap it up and embrace victory. And there's a lovely moment, if you can find a video, of that van art realising that then God is deliberately slowing down. And I think he said something like, he's going to let me win or something like that. And just the love and chemistry after the stage, that van art was there, at the line cheering Jonas Finger God over. It was the complete opposite of the scenes we saw from Yumpo Visma in 2020, when you know the bad thing happened from their perspective, and yeah, the, the romance between Van Ar and Vingegaard and the respect between Vingegaard and Pagaccha. Honestly, I'm just I, I love all of it. it. It's perfect. Hopefully, it will all stay this way forever because this is what I love in sports. I, I, I just I like I like people respecting each other and liking each other. What more can I say? And with how wild that stage was, it was almost a perfect ending to the Tour de France. Obviously, there was the stage the day after Paris-La-Difrance to paris Champs elyse 116 kilometres. The key start people were talking about before the stage was that there had not been a breakaway win on the Champs-Elyse since 2005. And that it, with how weird and wild this tour was, wouldn't it just be typical if this tour ended with a breakaway win but that did not happen in the end though weird was also to come because the stage started at kilometer zero on a day that's meant to be relaxing and just about celebrating and being happy until we get into Paris everyone just sort of takes a slow start except Pogaccia, Vingegaard and Van Aert attacked from kilometer zero because of course they did because why wouldn't you? it's so wild there was one point where they turned around and just looked and went oh look no one's no one's behind us it was like they were in their own world and let's face it they had been for most of this tour so it was just another one of those exceptional sights that we've only seen in the 2022 edition of the tour de france it was it was incredible they just decided to sprint from the beginning. For no reason. I'm not going to complain. It was exceptional. They did have to slow down and wait up. Because. A. They couldn't have kept up that pace. And B. The Yombo Visma riders have to have their champagne. And photo opportunities and all that. Because they've won the Tour de France. And obviously it's the first time in a while. We've had champagne. On the last stage. Because of uh, who Pogaccia rides for. And the politics of the country. Uh, No champagne allowed for them. Not even like fake champagne. No, just not even allowed the image. So anyway, we get into Paris. The next weird thing was that Pogaccia and Geraint Thomas attacked on the final lap. Because of course they did. We could all see that coming to fruition, right? (laughs) But just, again, they just did it for the sake of doing it. Just for the sake of racing. Because why not? Sitting back would be boring. Anyway, that's not how the lap finished. It was Jesper Philipson who had looked good on stage 19. Winning in the sprint, he was in a different league to the rest of the group. He was fantastic. It was his second win of the Tour de France. And, of course, winning on the Cobbles is particularly special. So, a good end for Alpacine de Koenig, who, of course, had lost Matthew van der Poel earlier on in in the race. He he didn't really have have a good race, unlike... In the Giro where he made it all the way to the end. He did not make it to Paris. And that was the end of the Tour de France. It was absolutely incredible. It was, like I said, the best edition of the Tour I've ever watched. And I would love to watch it again and again and again. I will quickly talk about the stages I haven't talked about so far. I'm trying to see if there's any stages I didn't mention. There was only one from from week one. Uh, Bob Jungles on stage nine, Agile Touchatel, won in quite a big breakaway. I think he attacked from about 65 kilometers out and soloed it all the way to the line. So very impressive performance from Bob Jungles and AG2 our Citroën who had been putting all of their eggs in the Ben O'Connor basket, and we mentioned the madness of stage five. I didn't mention uh, Ben O'Connor had a mechanical on that stage and lost about four minutes. So even though I didn't think he had any realistic hopes for the GC, that completely killed his chances before he could even get going. So it was a uh, it was a much needed win for an AG2R side who would have been down on their luck. Uh, Art had won on stage eight from Dole to Lausanne in a sprint, just beating out Michael Matthews and of all people, Tadej Pogacar. Because why not? Uh, it, it was a hard one. It was one of those that uh, they had quite a steep climb beforehand so it wasn't your typical contenders who were going for it it was uh you know the likes of Vingegaard, Pidcock, Jungels, Vlasov it, it was all of them who were competing, but it was that the man who can do everything who won it I think that's every stage covered right yeah it is okay So, just to go into the final results, then, Jonas Wiengegaard won the Tour de France with a time of 79 hours, 33 minutes and 20 seconds. It was the fastest Tour de France of all time. Absolutely phenomenal. The average speed of 42.102 kilometres per hour for Vingegaard. Absolutely exceptional. Pogacar came second, 2 minutes 43 down. Geraint Thomas third, 7 minutes 22 down. David Godou fourth, 13 minutes 39 down. Alexander Vlasov fifth, 15 minutes 46 down. By the way, I do want to mention whilst we're on the topic, last place this year was Caleb Ewan, who came in 5 hours, 40 minutes and 42 seconds down. On the final stage, he had a picture of the Lantern Rouge on the back of his cycling jersey, which I, I loved. Obviously, when you're a sprinter, you're not concerned about your final time so long as you get in the time cut. And Caleb Ewan did. By the way, was that great moment with Fabio Jacobson when he got in the time cut on one of the stages by about 17 seconds or 27 seconds. And... and the team uh, quick step after vinyl celebrating after that, which was which was quite nice to watch. Real wholesome moments there. In the points classification, uh Foutenot won it with four hundred and eighty points. Honestly, significant failure, didn't get to five hundred, sack him. But he he had sort of like the maybe not the Sagan advantage, but He had an advantage over the sprinters because, obviously, he was picking up a lot of the intermediate points that were in the mountains and and over hills, and he was able to get the sprint points on stages that finished uphill and the ones where the typical sprinters just couldn't compete. Um, That's why his lead was so big in the end and why he was able to just sweep up so many points, whereas, you know, last year, I think Cavendish won with like 300 and odd, and it might have been at the low end of the 300s. Uh, anyway, Jasper Philipson, second, 286 points. Today, Bogatia, of all people, third, 250, because he can do everything. Christoph Leport, fourth, 171 points. Fabio Jacobson fifth, 159 points. Just one point clear of Mads Pedersen in sixth. King of the Mountains, Jonas Vingegaard won this as well. It's been quite a while now since I mean, since the King of the Mountains jersey was not won by the winner of the GC as well. But Vingegaard, 72 points. Simon Geschke, 65 points. So close. But taken off him in such a cruel way. Uh, Giulio Ciccone. 61 points. Tade Pagaccha 61 points. Vout Van Aert, 59 points. Because my man can do everything. In the youth classification, Pagaccha won 79 hours, 36 minutes, 3 seconds. Pidcock, second, at plus 58 minutes and 32 seconds. Brandon McNulty, third, at plus an hour, 28 and 36 seconds. Matteo Jorgensen, fourth, an hour, 31, 14 And Andreas Leknesund, 5th, 1 hour, 54 minutes and 48 seconds. In the team classification, it was Ineos who won this year, 239 hours, 3 minutes and 3 seconds. Groupama FDJ, 2nd, which was quite a surprise, 37 minutes, 33 seconds. Jumbo Visma, 3rd, 44 minutes, 54 seconds. 4th, brother Hansgrove, 1 hour, 48 minutes, 45 seconds. And 5th, Movistar, 2 hours, 11 minutes and 22 seconds. So, before I wrap up the podcast, it's time to go into some awards. Best rider dash favourite rider, I guess, of the tour this year obviously has to be Jonas Fingergaard because, I'll be honest, going into the tour, I was very pessimistic because I thought, well, there's no challenge. is going to win and whilst he is fun to watch, and, and it's fascinating to see what he can do. It is all. It also did feel very predictable, and I didn't see anyone being able to challenge him. So, Vingegaard, not only showing that he can challenge him, but that he will have a very good rivalry with Pogaccia in the future, not only on a talent level, but also in the sense of how much they respect each other, which is genuinely really nice and wholesome. Uh I think it really sets up cycling for a bright future and so the the change of my attitude towards the Tour de France because of Jonas thing, God makes him easily the rider of the year. Though of course credit goes to Val van Art once again who can just do everything. I think it's his second year. He's been the honourable mention for Rider of the Year. Obviously last year it was Mark Cavendish who won. Young Rider of the Year There's only one person I'm going to give it to. Tom Pidcock. He won the hardest stage in this year's Tour de France. And he's shown that he might have a future in the GC. Who knows? Obviously, he finished 58 minutes down on Pogaccia. And over an hour down on Vingegaard. But, you know. Got to start somewhere. And he was exceptional to watch. Especially on that stage to Alpe d'Huez. Moment of the year. I'm going to go with, obviously, the... Vingegaard, Pagaccia Handshake. It shows what our sport should be about. It shows what we want to see from cyclists. And if I ran a cycling club, I'd be showing that to all of the kids to say, this is what you do. It, it was really nice. And it's a moment that Netflix should be really hyping up in their series. Stage of the year, obviously. Stage 12, Brian Conto, Alpe d'Huez. Obviously, this has to be my stage of the of the tour because Tom Pidcock won it and it was absolutely exceptional. Though credit also has to go, obviously, to stage 11, Albertville to Col du Grenon because that was the stage that made us realise that there is actually going to be a rivalry and duel for the Tour de France in the future. And, of course, as well, stage 18 from Loders to Harthekam it might feel like I'm picking on Tade Pogaccia a tad bit, so I will also say as well, stage 7, Tom Blaine to La Superplanche de Balfi, was also an exceptional stage and an exceptional performance from Pagatcha. Unlike the day before where it felt annoying how everyone else had done, this was just Pagatcha being way better than everyone else. Anyway, those awards were off the cuff and I can't think of any more. So, with nothing more to be said, that is the end of Vive le Tour for the 2022 Tour de France. Except it isn't, because I will be doing a podcast reviewing the Tour de France Femme next week. Obviously, it's already started, and you'll know how it's been going on if you've been following it, which you absolutely should be, because it is fantastic. And I'll be talking about that in the next episode. But until then, thank you for listening. I've been Alex Woodward. And until next time, vive la tour.